Let me invite your attention to Matthew 27 and 1 Peter chapter 2. Matthew writes of the crucifixion in terms of those who rejected Jesus Christ. Story after story after story in Matthew 27 emphasizes the personalities that said no to Jesus Christ and mocked and blasphemed Him. In other words, Matthew is written as a mirror and he wants those who first read and those who would subsequently read the crucifixion account in Matthew to see a mirror reflection of the world. And that's what he does in Matthew 27. It reminds me of an African chief that visited a missionary home. And she arrived and she saw outside the missionary home a tree and posted on that tree happened to be a mirror. And she went and looked into the mirror in the first mirror she'd ever seen in her life. And she saw the war paint and the, well, I would call it a hairdo, not a hair don't, not a hairdo, that she was wearing as she looked into the mirror and she jumped back at a gasp. The missionary by this time had come out and she said, who was the person in that tree looking at me so ugly? He said, there's no person in the tree that's a mirror and it reflects your, your own uh, image. And she said, I want to buy that. He said, well, I don't want to sell it. Well, she persisted and he thought, well, it's better to sell it than, uh, than to tell her no. And so she purchased it and she threw it on the ground and smashed it and said, it will never look at me that way again. The problem is, when the mirror was stacked, she still had the same face. And we can dismiss the Bible, we can dismiss churches, we can dismiss the notion of truth, we can revise traditional language, all that we want to, but at the end of the day, we can't finally smash the image that we see of ourselves when we look into the mirror of the Word of God. This day... Recorded in Matthew 27 is one of the worst days ever to be experienced by any human being. It's not a hospitable time. It is the exact opposite of Palm Sunday where they sang Hosanna to Jesus' name and laid palm branches before His colt as He rode into Jerusalem as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Several things that take place here. One, Pilate scourged Christ. In verse 26 of Matthew 27 it says... In verse 26, Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The scourging was called by some the halfway death. They would strip off the clothes of the victim and tie his hands and feet to the base of a stump or perhaps a pole that was arranged vertically. And a Roman executioner would come out with a flagellum. It had a handle about 14 to 18 inches long. It had several leather thongs protruding from it. And at the end, and sometimes embedded within the thongs, happened to be bone, pottery, and other sharp objects. And it would size up the victim and bring the whip down upon his back. Now, the Jews could only do this 40 times. The Romans had no such limit. And they would beat the victim until he was senseless. Sometimes the victim would pass out. And they would wake him up with a bucket of water in his face and then continue to beat him. When they were done with him, his back was turned into ribbons of quivering flesh. This is what Pilate did. He scourged Jesus. But then, 
Following that time, guards beat Jesus. In verses 27 through 32, we find a horrible account. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, about 600 soldiers, in something of a courtyard. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now his back is bleeding, and they put this robe on him. He he is stripped. All notions of Jewish modesty are gone. These are Romans, they don't care. And so they strip Jesus naked, and they place this robe upon his back. In verse 29, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. It's something you'd have to force around his head. And a reed in his right hand. Every king carries a scepter, so they put one in his hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. They have mocking instruments of royalty that they dress with Jesus. One commentator says that one thing that they did is that they would play with victims of crucifixion a little game that they called hot hand. And that is they would show their hands to the victim. And then they would blindfold him and beat him and ask him to guess which one of them did not hit him. There would be just one that didn't. And this apparently is what they did. And this went on, some believe, for at least two hours. And Jesus was so weakened by this that he could not carry his own crossbeam to Calvary's hill. Well, following this, we find that they ripped the robe off of his back. Well, it congealed. The blood had congealed with the robe and his wounds were opened. The guards beat Jesus. Then soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross in verse 33 through 38. When they come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. Most believe this happened to be a narcotic, an anesthetic, that they would administer to the victim of crucifixion to cause him to pass out or numb some of the pain so it would make it easier for soldiers to put nails in their hands and feet. Well, Jesus refused it. Jesus refused the painkiller and felt the entire pain, portion of pain, that was involved in being nailed to a cross. And then it says in verse 35, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. They're so callous they could sit down. And they put over his head his crime. This is the king of the Jews. And so they nailed him to the cross. The cross was the worst form of execution that most could ever imagine. In fact, Romans could not suffer this. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. In fact, we find in verse 38 that two insurrectionists or Jewish terrorists or what they might call freedom fighters were nailed up with him. This is the, this is the death sentence, the execution reserved for them. And Jesus is suffering it. 
Well, in verse 39 to 40, uh, tourists blame Christ. There are many of them from around the world for Passover. And it says, beginning in verse 39, those who passed by blasphemed him. And, and then look at the intensity of their blasphemy and their words. They blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Their disdain for him is unmitigated. They wag their heads at him. And then priests mock Jesus in verse 41 and on down. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Now, is that not a remarkable confession? The word saved was oftentimes used in the Gospels for healing physically. They are admitting here that Jesus healed people physically. Well, what's the natural question? Well, if he healed people physically, why are you killing him? So they admit he saved others. Himself he cannot say, if he's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Well, that's an irony of ironies. He stayed on the cross so he could save them. Had he come down, none of them would be saved. With this admission, they should have embraced him. And you should too. We'll give you the opportunity at the end of the message to repent and place faith in Christ and to run and flee from that mirror image that you see of yourself in this text. I want to announce to you, the Son of God bled for you, and there is freedom from your guilt now. There's freedom from condemnation. You don't have to be condemned like this crowd was. You can be liberated and freed from the guilt of sin and the power of it, because Jesus has bled for you. And then the convicts revile Jesus Christ. Even the robbers, verse 44, who were crucified with him, reviled him with the same thing. I mean, here they are, executed for their crimes. They're receiving the worst death penalty. One of them would later admit he's guilty. And they still have it within the human heart to revile the Son of God. You know what I've observed? I've observed that as the culture and individuals become more wicked, they also become more self-righteous. The self-righteousness that drips from the hostile, anti-Christ, anti-Bible crowd is stunning to me. The convicts reviled Christ. Then verse 45 and 46 intensifies the whole story. Now at the sixth hour, the morning began at, at about six in the morning. The sixth hour would be about noon. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. If you'll study Matthew and darkness, you'll find darkness is usually associated with sin and judgment. So a symbol of judgment covered the entire land. It's Passover, so there's a full moon, so there's not an eclipse here. The entire land is covered up with darkness all over the land. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated from Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now some have stumbled over the notion that the Father abandoned Jesus Christ at the cross, but Jesus didn't. He is speaking truth by quoting Scripture. 
Something mysterious and awful and terrible and heartbreaking and even eternal happened when Jesus was bleeding on the cross. There the Father poured out the wrath that He possessed against the sins and sinners of the world and focused it entirely all on His Son. In fact, He broke the fellowship and the walk He had had with His Son for all eternity at this moment and abandoned Him. And Jesus reflects that and says, Why have you forsaken me? You've abandoned me. He indeed is accurate and true. Now, some gawkers distorted him. Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, Well, this man's calling for Elijah. And one of them ran immediately to give him some, some kind of drink that would clear his throat so he could speak more clearly is what took place here. But there's always someone in a crowd in the most intense and precious and treasured time who misunderstands Jesus, even at the cross. So Gonkers distorted Christ. But I want you to see here, in the balance of the text this morning, that at this worst possible moment, and while everyone else was responding wrong, there are a couple of characters here that respond right. Verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and they delayed for just a moment, for for a couple of days. Coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Even in the worst possible times, we can respond rightly to Jesus Christ. There are a couple of responses here, in fact. One, Christ responded in an exemplary manner. 1 Peter chapter 2 elaborates on this, in fact. 1 Peter chapter 2, and it says, beginning in verse 21, For the, to this you were called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, did not revile in return. And when He suffered, He did not threaten, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously, who Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree." that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. Even in the worst of circumstances, Jesus Christ responded as the example of examples. Now something remarkable is taking place here, if you'll turn back to Matthew 27. Something else is happening here, you've got to understand. There are a couple of clues here that are surfaced by some titles and some Old Testament quotations and allusions here. 
and Matthew 27. Did you notice some of the titles here used for Jesus Christ? There are four. In verse 30 of Matthew 27, or verse 29, they call him the king of the Jews. In verse number 42, they call him the king of Israel. He is called also twice in this text the Son of God. All four of these titles are titles of royal reference. Now some of them fall from the lips of wicked persons. One from someone who truly trusts Jesus Christ. But we've got that here in this text. And then in verse number 40, or excuse me, verse number 26, verse number 34, verse number 35, verse number 38, verse number 39, and 40 and 43, 46 and 50, we have fulfilled prophecy. All of this was foretold. What we find here in this text is that the God of heaven is arranging circumstances so that the king who's come in flesh might die for the sins of the people. Jesus is on a mission from heaven, his own mission, and he does so without sin or spot or stain, pollution or contamination. Now I must tell you, it's very difficult for me to respond graciously during a time of trouble. It's difficult for anyone who's still breathing to do so. In fact, times of trouble happen to be our worst moment, but in this text, times of trouble happen to be Jesus' best moment. Is how he handled this. Jesus Christ responded in an exemplary manner because he is dying for the sins of the world. I want to encourage you, following this message is an opportunity to get clean before God. And the storehouses of forgiveness and grace have been opened by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is no longer any need to be haunted by the memory or the fear or the guilt of sin. Any humble person that will bow the knee to Christ and confess and trust the death of Jesus Christ can be forgiven, can start a new day with God. In fact, the Bible says it's like being born again. Now, I've been in the delivery room four times with each of my four children, and the circumstances of their birth were all different, but the final result was the same. When each of them were born, whether March 23rd or whether it was January 6th or whether it was November 14th or November 25th, on each of those four days, every one of them had one thing true about each of the four of them. They all had one thing in common. Not one of them had a past. They only had a future. And when you come to Jesus Christ, He transforms your spirit and your standing with God so much so it's as if you've been born all over again God no longer sees the past, only a future for you when you come to Jesus Christ. Glory to His name. That's because Jesus Christ did what He did here. But that's not all. Not only did did Christ respond in an exemplary manner, but the, the centurion, and apparently several centurions, responded in an exemplary manner as well. Now you may be saying, well, of course He did. I mean, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Well, that means that the presence of God was open to anyone who would repent and believe the gospel. And and did you notice the text was real clear? It was torn not from the bottom up to where a high priest could tear it. It was torn at 60 feet tall. It's torn from where? The top to the bottom. Who tore it open then? 
Well, the one who commanded its existence, the one who wants to walk with his people, God himself reached down and ripped that thing open like a child opens a birthday present. Well, well, of course the centurion believed. He had that. And then there, there was an earthquake. And rocks were split and tombs were opened and dead persons were raised. Of course he believed. I want you to note, he was about the only one who did. The rest of the crowd did not. At the end of his confession, the truth is, most of this crowd did not believe. Don't think it's easier to believe with the miracle. It's really easier to believe in the presence of the Word of God. People are rarely convinced by miracles. If they were convinced by miracles, as they admitted here in verse number 42, Jesus would have never been crucified. It was very difficult for the centurion to respond appropriately. And there are several ways to characterize his response. One way, it's a surprising response. He is a Roman centurion. As a Roman, he's probably committed to some paganism, at least on a superficial level. As a centurion, he's military, and every year he has to pinch incense and throw it into a fire and declare Caesar is Lord. The behavior and code and the thought and opinions and views of Roman officers had to accord with Caesar, and they also had to accord with other soldiers. I mean, have you ever been in a barracks? I hope not. If you're different, you're identified. And so this is a surprising response. And and what we find to be even more surprising is that the Bible scholars to whom he could look are actually blaspheming Christ, and the centurion goes against all of the sentiment of the Bible scholars and embraces Jesus Christ anyway. It is ironic. I want to say to you, dear friends, I have found through the years great blessings from many Bible scholars and many who have had a serious commitment to Jesus Christ, but I agree with Chuck, the late Chuck Colson who said, God's biggest headache through the centuries has been religion. And that's true in so many ways. Religion has gotten into the way of God and His movement so often. And that's what we find taking place here in this text. So it's a surprising thing that the centurion came And the last thing you may have considered when you entered the worship service today and came onto the Beach Haven property today may be that you were going to become a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. But God pulls off things just like that. That's that's exactly what He does. And I want to make it real clear to you. Jesus Christ is worthy of any surprising commitment you can make to Him today. He is too worthy for you to say no to Him. This is a surprising response, but that's not all. It's also a solitary response. There's never been a worse crowd assembled. One commentator says that coming at Jesus was torment from all sides. Jesus is not a popular person on this day. Every strata of society is dedicated against him. The religious sector, the government sector, the military the popular crowd, the religious crowd, all against Jesus Christ. And yet, the centurion dismisses the crowd and responds appropriately to Jesus Christ anyway. I want to say to you, 
I hope that you will say yes to Jesus Christ today, immediately after the message, when we extend the invitation. I hope you'll rush to Him, but I've got to be very honest with you. You might lose some friends and popularity, reputation and standing if you do. Now, if you do, I I want to assure you, you'll gain us. You can have us. We'll stand with you. You won't walk alone. But I will tell you, you will be alone some places. We can't go with you everywhere. Beach Haven Baptist Church will dedicate itself and pour itself out to you if you give yourself to Jesus Christ today. But you might have to suffer. You may have to suffer. Again, I want to remind you, Jesus suffered publicly for you. He is worthy of that kind of life. There is a cost to following Jesus. There's a greater cost to telling Him no. It's a solitary response. It's a surprising response. It's also a selfless response. You know, it's easy to come to Jesus in the rah-rah when everyone else is. When it's popular to have a biblically defined commitment to Jesus Christ, it's easy. But beloved, when you're the only one doing it and folks reject you, it makes it more difficult. Jesus has died. He's not risen from the dead yet. And after his death and after all of the abuse hoisted upon Jesus Christ, it is at that moment that the centurion confesses him as the Son of God. In other words, in his mind, he cannot benefit from Jesus any longer. He's dead. Jesus cannot benefit him professionally or vocationally. He cannot benefit him socially. And it is at the worst possible moment when he cannot gain anything from Christ that he comes to Jesus Christ. Apparently, he's not looking for anything from Jesus. He's just looking to give himself away. And that is the perfect position to be in with the Son of God. Now, I've got to say to you, the Lord is a sun and a shield. He gives grace. He gives glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly before Him. We've been, in Christ, blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And we've been given great and precious promises by which to escape the corruption in the world through lust. It is a sweet thing and a good thing to follow Jesus. But when we come to Jesus Christ, we come to Him desiring to please Him and not just ourselves. We may not take a step up culturally, vocationally, professionally, and socially. We actually may be taking a step down. But it doesn't matter because the Son of God is worth it. He is worthy of such commitments. And this is the essence of true commitment. Now Jesus then endured a scourging from the government. He endured a beating. He endured the nails in blasphemy and mockery and abandonment and misunderstanding. So how should you respond to it? How can you say no to this God and man? What is the appropriate response to Jesus today? You tell me. What is the appropriate response? Love so amazing, so divine, 
Demands my soul, my life, my all. Everything I've got, I'm giving to Jesus. Is that your confession today? He's the crucified, risen Son of God. He can have me. He's worthy. I don't care too much about what He's going to give to me. I trust I'll have His grace and forgiveness, mercy in His heaven. I just want to make sure today, you, you, you'll say, that I give my all to Him because He is worthy. I want Him to have it all. I want Him to have my sins. I want Him to have my goals and aspirations and dreams. I want Him to have my life. I want Him to have every temptation. I want Him to have my responses in every trial. I give my all to Him. If that's you, respond humbly today. The Scripture makes it clear, and Jesus repeated six times, He who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Please flee the naive notion that there's any virtue or righteousness in any of us. We need Him. Respond also in trust. 1 Peter 3.18 or 2.24 says, He bore our sins in His body on the tree. Peter calls it a tree because God created the trees and by creating trees, He created the instruments that would produce the instruments that would produce the instruments that would be eventually formed into a cross for His Son. Even in creation, the Father was thinking of crucifixion of His Son. And what you do is that you entrust yourself fully to the death of Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust, because we've strayed from God, but we're coming back to the shepherd of our souls. If you'll transfer your trust from any naive notion of your virtue and trust only the virtue and the work of Jesus Christ, you'll please the Father today. And then you plead with Him to save you and cleanse you and make you His own. Matthew 7, 7 promises... Uh, ask it shall be given, seek you shall find, knock the door shall be open to you. God is willing to throw open the doors of grace and mercy and kindness to any sinner who repents and believes. And to his children who know him, who've strayed, who've disobeyed, who've been unfaithful, he is really willing to throw it open to you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your servant. Make me as one of your slaves, you may say to him. And the father says, Bring sandals, a robe, and kill the fatted calf, for my son who was dead has come home and is alive again. Why don't you come? Whatever you do during this invitation time, would you please make absolute certain, as we sing together, that you have prepared yourself to meet a holy God and His crucified, honored, cherished, and treasured Son in the Lord's Supper? Would you do that? To the pleasure of the Father. Father, we thank You for the good news of the Word. We bless You and praise You forever and forever. And we ask, O oh God, that you would move among us in power and great glory for the sake of Jesus. Help us to be clean and pure as we come to the Lord's table today. But first, I pray that those that need to do serious business with you today would do so in repentance and faith and humility. Would you please move among us for that purpose? Now, here's what we're going to do as you keep talking to the Lord. No one's looking around. Our staff is going to be here in the front. And just as soon as we start singing, our deacons will come. Our staff will be here. And if you need to do serious business with God and you need our help, I want to encourage you to come. Maybe you've already come to know the Lord, but you need to follow Him in baptism. Would you come? Maybe God's moving on your heart to become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church. We want you to come as well. Whatever it takes to do the will of the Father in this time, would you please do that? so we can be prepared to honor Jesus in the Lord's Supper.
I want to ask you to quickly and quietly stand while I finish my prayer, then we'll sing, we'll ask you to come. Father, thank you for your dear Son. And in these moments, help us to treasure treasure and cherish Him like you do. And when we're done with this time, may we be ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You come, come. Come, just stand.